we'll start a minute early today. Um, Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and I want to thank our witnesses for testifying today. I know Mr. Wary just returned, I think, maybe this morning from Libya or last night, uh, but uh, pretty fresh in input, and we appreciate that very much. Um, like many policy issues, Libya has come in and out of the spotlight over the last five years. Today we are again focused on Libya because of the, str the struggling formation of a uni unity government and the growth of ISIS within the country. One of the tragedies of Libya has been our inability to build substantial, substantial policies that will help Libya progress out of the revolution. Hope that this time the focus on Libya will not fade and that you can help us determine what our approach should be. And again, we thank you both for being here. For perspective, I think it's worth noting that even if a unity government is successfully seated in Tripoli, that only brings Libya back politically to where we were in 2013, which was after U.S. Ambassador Chris Stevens was tragically killed and two years before ISIS established itself in Libya. For a country with vast oil wealth and thankfully void of widespread sectarian tensions, Libya should become a success story. I think we all are disheartened that in many ways U.S. policy or lack thereof has hindered Libya's progress. I hope our witnesses today can give us a sense of how we got where we are, an update on the current situation, and what options we have going forward. Libya raises important questions about the efficacy of U.S. military intervention and the necessary follow-up. American intervention helped to depose a brutal dictator, but the complete lack of a plan the day after created a vacuum allowing ISIS to form a terrorist safe haven. By contrast, in Syria, our complete failure to act when we had the opportunity to shift the balance in favor of free Syrian opposition clearly shows the consequences of American inaction can be just as disastrous. I hope you can help us today to answer some of those questions in a constructive manner so that we don't use Libya as an anecdote for or against intervention, but rather we learn from the past to better inform our actions in the future. I want to thank you again and uh, turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin, for his comments. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, uh, thank you for convening this hearing. Uh, this is an extremely important subject, what's happening in Libya, a path forward. And we have uh, two, I think, uh, outstanding witnesses who can help us better understand the current situation in Libya and how the United States can help uh, move that country forward uh, towards uh, unity, government, and peace. Uh, it's been just over five years. Uh, the Libyan people courageously came together to challenge the brutal Gaddafi regime. The ensuing transition has not been easy, as the Libyan people inherited a state built on the cult of personality rather than on long-lasting national institutions. Now, Libyan leaders and the Libyan people have opportunity. In December 2015, after tireless efforts by Libyan leaders, the United Nations, the United States, the Europeans, the Arab diplomats, Libyans of all agreed to form a government of national accord. Five years after their evolution, rival Libyan parliaments uh, and other factions have, should honor their people's sacrifice and implement this agreement, which offers the best hope for stability and prosperity. This is an important moment, and it's my hope that the Libyan leaders will move their country forward towards a better future. 
The alternative, quite frankly, is more division, a weakened Libya, and an opening for ISIL and other violent extremist groups to further entrench themselves and terrorize the Libyan people, bringing about misery and death. A united Libya is critical for restoring security and improving the well-being of its citizens. I cannot stress enough that in Libya, as in many war-torn countries across the Middle East, there is no military solution to the conflict. We can't win a military battle. We need to bring the country together. Only a negotiated political settlement can end the chaos, violence, and human suffering and set the country on a path of inclusiveness and stability. Because we know the current path is going nowhere in a country blessed with an abundant energy resources, it is estimated that nearly a third of the population need humanitarian assistance, and over a million Libyans are suffering from malnutrition. Continued violence is creating a public health crisis with more than 40 percent of the health facilities not functioning. I am also deeply alarmed by reports of a growing ISIL presence in parts of Libya. But I also believe that outside military intervention, absent a political process and broad Libya buy-in, may just exacerbate the problem. Only a strong, confident, and united Libya can work together with the international community to combat terrorism. The urgency for unity being conveyed to Libyan leaders cannot be understated. Uh, if ISIL is permitted to grow on Libyan soil, not only will it cause untold suffering, but it will destroy critical energy infrastructure needed for reconstruction. A national unity government is needed now so the Libyans may begin a process of disarming and dismobilizing the myriad of militias and transitioning these young men into sustainable employment. At the same time, work on security sector reform and building a unified national military responsive and accountable to all Libyan citizens must begin immediately. The reality is that instability in Libya affects the entire Mediterranean. I am deeply disturbed by the continued reports of human smuggling and the plight of migrants, some of whom drowned on the, per uh, on the perilous journey from Libya to the Italian coast. Libya has become a transit point for trafficking in persons in sub-Saharan Africa, and only a stable state with firm borders can prevent these human atrocities and lend assistance to those in need. A stable Libya able to secure its own borders is also critical for ensuring the security of our partners in North Africa, especially Egypt and Tunisia. The time has come for Libya to unite and embrace a better future. The United States government has demonstrated its willingness to provide full backing to a unified Libyan government, as well as offer technical, economic, security, and counterterrorism assistance. I strongly support these efforts. We should be prepared to offer our support should, should implementation of the government and national accord move forward expeditiously. I would also like to applaud the United Nations and its support mission in Libya for its continued diplomatic engagement. It is imperative that our partners in Europe remain committed to supporting Libya at this critical time, and all countries must work together to have a sustainable solution uh, and a stable future for Libya. Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Well, thank you very much for your comments, and we'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Dr. Frederick Wary. Senior Associate for the Middle East Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Our second witness today is Dr. Claudia Gazzini, a senior analyst uh, on Libya for the International Crisis Group. We thank you both for your contributions. I think you know you can summarize your comments. Uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And if you would begin, Fred, we'd appreciate it. Um, we thank you again very much. 
Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> Chairman Corker, rank Ranking Member Cardin, Committee Members, I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak with you here today about Libya's worsening crisis and the next steps for U.S. policy. I just returned last night from Libya where I saw firsthand the country's humanitarian plight, political divisions, and the struggle against the self-proclaimed Islamic State. I spoke to the young militia fighters who are on the front lines against the Islamic State. I heard stories from the victims of its atrocities. What struck me most is that Libya's fragmentation into armed militias, tribes, and towns has created a vacuum that the Islamic State is exploiting. And this dissolution also presents a number of risks for US and Western strategy against the Islamic State. First, there is no national military command through which the US and its allies can channel counterterrorism aid. The country is split between two loose constellations of armed actors, the so-called Dignity Camp in the East and the Dawn Camp in the West. Now, over the last year, these two factions have fragmented, splintered, to the point that they exist in name only. And although the faction signed an agreement in December for a new government of national accord, that government remains stillborn and unable to exert its authority. A key stumbling block is the question of who and what faction will control the country's armed forces. But perhaps most worrisome is that these two camps are still, in my view, more focused on viewing each other as a threat rather than the Islamic State. Many are, in fact, using the danger posed by the Islamic State as a pretext to wage war against local rivals over political supremacy, turf, and economic spoils. Both sides accuse the other of collusion with the Islamic State. I saw this firsthand during a recent visit to the western town of Sabratha in the, in the wake of the US strike against an Islamic State facility last week. A great risk is that outside intervention against the Islamic State before a cohesive government is formed could sharpen these political fault lines. It could boost the power of militia bosses and sow the seeds of future conflict. Now, the current strategy appears to involve Western Special Operations Forces liaising with, training, and advising Libyan militias backed by aircraft using pre precision-guided munitions. But by assisting armed groups against the Islamic State, these special operators could, in fact, encourage greater factional conflict, and they could reduce the incentives for political reconciliation. And already we're seeing signs of this happening in Benghazi with recent advances by the military forces allied with General Khalifa Heftar. And this danger is also present in the town of Sirte and surrounding areas where the Islamic State is exploiting long-standing tribal grievances. Now, to prevent further fracturing, the U.S. should lend military assist assistance in a way that promotes reconciliation and cooperation between rival forces on the ground. It must tie military and counterterrorism assistance for the fight against the Islamic State to a process of integration of armed groups into a national command structure. To be eligible for counterterrorism training and equipment, for example, armed groups should accept the unity government. But that alone won't be enough. U.S. counterterrorism assistance <clears throat> should include the establishment of regional coordination mechanisms among local militias. The goal here is to set the stage for building a new, cohesive, and democratically controlled military. This will also mean intensifying Western diplomatic engagement to overcome the current standoff over who will command the army. A key priority should also be the redoubling of a UN-led security dialogue among armed actors on the ground. And the US must also limit meddling in Libyan affairs by regional states under the guise of counterterrorism, which thus far has been highly partisan and destabilizing. Over the mid and long term, once a unity government has returned, 
the U.S. must redouble its efforts to address radicalism's root causes. This should include reforming the oil-driven economy, supporting civil society and municipal-level governance, training the army and police, and restructuring defense institutions. Mr. Chairman, my recent trip left me with a strong appreciation for Libyans' resilience. The political fissures that rack the country are not unbridgeable. And contrary to some alarmist accounts, Libya has not fallen to extremism. Libya still has multiple actors willing and capable of defeating the terrorist narrative and territorial control. But the United States must work carefully to ensure that its strategy against the Islamic State harnesses and unifies these forces rather than further divides them. Thank you for the opportunity to speak here today. Thank you, Ms. Ghazani. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity to appear this morning on behalf of the International Crisis Group before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to discuss the political, economic, and security crisis in Libya. The International Crisis Group has been working in Libya since 2011. We are an independent, nonpartisan, non-governmental organization that provides field-based analysis and policy recommendations. As their analyst for Libya, um, I'm proud to say that our work is very field-based. Essentially, we talk to all stakeholders, politicians, militia leaders, um, smugglers at times, to get a view of what is happening in the country. This is what I do. This is what I have been doing for the past four, five years in the country. I mention this because talking to a wide array of uh, stakeholders on the ground sometimes gives us a deeper, at times more critical perspective of the events taking place in the country. For example, while most diplomats uh, were and remain upbeat on the possibility of implementing the UN-backed Libyan political agreement, on the basis of our meetings with Libyan stakeholders back in December, we took a more critical view of the possibility of implementing that political deal, and we warned that that agreement lacks sufficient Libyan buy-in. So today, before looking at what is the path ahead for your government for Libya, let's look at where the country stands. From a political point of view, Libya does, is still institutionally divided. The Libyan political agreement, the UN-backed plan signed by a group of Libyan politicians in December and backed by the UN Security Council, was supposed to end a political crisis that has divided the country institutionally since the summer of 2014. Despite the ongoing efforts by the UN Special Representative Martin Kobler, Libya still does not have a unity government in place. Sizable numbers of uh, members of the two rival parliaments continue to oppose the terms of the agreement and the government lineup that has been proposed. So in short, Libya today remains a divided country and the chances of implementing that UN-backed deal remain scant. Even in the most optimistic scenario, the agreement will take time to implement and the future government will, will face the problem of how to take seat in Tripoli. But the country's economic situation is also dire. Libya, as you know, is an oil-rich country, but over the past two years, production of crude oil has plummeted because of attacks on oil fields and oil terminals. The drop in oil prices has forced the country to run a deficit of up to two, three billion dollars a month. And this has rapidly drained the country's reserves of foreign currency, which are now between 50 and $60 billion. 
less than half of what they were just two years ago. Further compounding the country's economic problems is the fact that the country's main financial institutions, the central bank, the National Oil Corporation, and the country's sovereign wealth fund are institutionally divided along the same political lines mentioned before. The country's security landscape is also dire. The two rival military coalitions have become increasingly fragmented and the leadership of both coalitions is contested. So, what to do? What is the best course of action for the United States in this moment in time? Certainly the threat of the Islamic State in Libya is of great concern. But rushing an international military intervention in Libya to counter the Islamic State would be short-sighted and would probably backfire. Any such intervention should be discreet, measured, and linked to a political strategy aimed at Libyan armed factions together and political factions into a single government. That must remain the overarching goal. An effective, any effective action against the Islamic State in Libya will require local Libyan allies. This should be a Libyan-led effort. And the best way to achieve this would be to encourage a dialogue between Libyan security actors. Security arrangements and political negotiations must go hand in hand. And not, as has been the case over the past two years, treated as two separate processes. Similar strategic mistakes were made with the economy. The question of how to better manage, secure, and distribute Libya's resources and wealth cannot wait. A short-term requirement to st stabilize Libya's finances would be an agreement by the rival camps on two broad issues. What measures can be taken to increase oil and gas production in order to replenish the state coffers? And how to maintain a coherent, unified financial system? Let us not forget that there's no better recipe for ISIS expansion in the country than a country that is on the verge of economic collapse, a country where the illicit war economy thrives. The Libyan conflict is multidimensional and complex. The political dimension cannot be dealt with separately from the economic dimension, and both are dependent on security arrangements. What is needed is a more concerted effort by all stakeholders on these three fronts simultaneously. We think that the US has a major role to play here, particularly in ensuring that regional actors that are also enmeshed in the conflict play a more constructive role. So in conclusion, there needs to be simultaneous efforts to overcome Libya's economic fractures and economic and financial crisis, build bridges in a fragmented security landscape, and build confidence in a future government of national unity. Only these three simultaneous efforts can prepare the ground in Libya for an inclusive, constructive, and hopefully lasting agreement and a return for a return to a united and peaceful Libya. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Wary, uh, do you agree with uh, Ms. Ms. Cozzini's point that us becoming involved in dealing with uh, ISIS uh, prior to uh, the resolution of these other issues would hamper uh, diplomatic uh, efforts within Libya? 
I do, but I, I want to qualify that in the sense that I think there are ways to do this on the ground discreetly in, in ways that mitigate the broader you know, political risks that, I, that I've just outlined. So, I mean, the question is one of time horizon. How long can we wait? And, you know, I was there, and, I mean, the Islamic State is, is building. And so there are armed actors on the ground that are talking to each other about moving forward against the Islamic State. So the question is how do we discreetly support those forces in a way that doesn't exacerbate the broader fault lines and that lays the seeds for, you know, reconciliation down the road. So I know there's been contemplated uh, 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 a pretty massive air assault, if you will, and so you're not thinking that prior to, uh, to uh, the government uh, unifying, you're not thinking that that would be a good step to take you're thinking of something more discreet on the ground. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. I mean, very low level. I mean, the airstrikes, okay, these surgical ones, um, I was there in the aftermath of this one in, in Sabratha. And then, you know, I was also there when, <clears throat> when the U.S., uh, right after the U.S. grabbed the, you know, Bukatala. And the sense among Libyans is sort of, there's, there is a sense about, well, we should have been consulted and some blowback. But a lot of it's like, you know, good riddance. I mean, let's, let's get rid of these guys. And so, the spoilers, the rejectionists will, will attack our strikes. I think as long as they're measured and discreet, um, you know, they could serve utility. And in tandem, I mean, this, this discreet strategy of, of special operators liaising with um, Libyan actors, I think, could work. So. Speaking of special operators, right now it appears there's a wide variety of foreign special operations forces uh, uh, on the ground in Libya. Both U.S. and Europe have bold plans for supporting the GNA. If the GNA is supported under heavy, uh, w heavy Western hand, does that, cause, does that not cause them to, to lack legitimacy in the eyes of Libyans, both of you? There is, first of all, uh, in my point of view, a problem of how do we endorse or how do Libyans endorse this GNA? Uh, the procedures uh, established in the agreement that Libyan stakeholders signed establishes that this GNA should be formally endorsed by a vote of the Tobruk-based parliament. At the moment, the discussion seems to be w whether the, a vote is actually needed or not. I mention this because the extent of support that Western countries and non-Western countries will uh, give to this future G GNA has to be measured. And it also has to follow, from our point of view, a correct and proper endorsement mechanism of this government. It would be risky to flower, uh, uh, throw on this future government of national unity a level of military assistance that will uh, foster this idea of it being a creation, and not only a creation, a puppet of the will of Western countries. Mr. Wary, agree or disagree? I, I do agree. I mean, I think there is the sense that this is a third government, that it's, you know, it's been imposed. And so, yeah, if there is military support flow, flowing to that government, it could create some, some you know, dissonance. And so, Again, I just think that speaks back to this notion that we have to get all the, all the security actors, all the armed forces on the ground, on board, you know, with this new government before we start opening up a third channel of, of assistance. So, you know, uh, I think we all know, just listening to testimony in armed services and just other conversations we have, that the U.S. is very concerned about five to 6,000 ISIS members there. Um, you're saying that we shouldn't get uh, 
uh, too heavy-handed, if you will, in trying to seat this new government. And so I would just say, I mean, there's a lot of uh, significant concern that ISIS is growing. Uh, what are the prospects of uh, there actually being a government uh, seated, if you will, without additional involvements by the U.S. and others? I mean, is, is, do you see this happening anytime soon? And in the process, uh, what happens relative to ISIS? Well, again, I was in Tripoli, and I mean, the security situation there is is really um, fraught with with risks. And I mean, there's a patchwork of militias that are con controlling different turfs. And so, how do you get this government to come and return and, and set itself up? And do you have an agreement among these militias to protect the new government? We're not there yet, um, and so this is this is really dangerous. Um, I think what is happening in the interim um, is that local actors are, are going after ISIS, whether it's in Sabratha, whether it's in Derna. Um, you know, some of these guys are, some of these actors are, are not necessarily the sorts of people we would be dealing with normally. Some of them are, are you know, tribal, they're, they're mafia-like, they're Salafists, but they're the ones that are, that are pushing back against the Islamic State. In some cases, and I, I want to emphasize this, they're, they're not often going after the Islamic State per se, they're going after their rivals and they're saying, well, these guys are Islamic State, we arrested them, but there's no way to verify this. So it is, it is very fraught right now, and that's why I think some measure of, of support on the ground, liaising, could sort of shape the environment where we harness these local actors in, you know, before, there's a, before there's a unity government that seats itself. So. Since he's answered that question, and I have a minute and nine seconds left, any observations uh, about, uh, I know it's a big question to ask with a minute left, but uh, just any observations about what we've learned um, relative to our involvements there? I think one lesson that can be drawn on, on the uh, international engagement in Libya is that insufficient in engagement in bringing together security groups in the country uh, will not lead to a stable country, will not pave the way for a, um, a stable political life of the country. We made this mistake in December, pushing forward a political agreement without sufficient security sector arrangements. We make the risk now again, of pushing forward an anti-ISIS coalition or military intervention without making those necessary footsteps to bring the armed groups on the ground together. Just to echo that, I mean, I think a big problem was that there was never a consensus early on about what the new military would look like, um, the, the demobilization of the militias. Um, there was no security sector reform track. There was a huge focus early on on, on establishing uh, the elections, voting, supporting civil society, yeah. but in the absence of, of a security track, I mean, those efforts fell apart, and so the new parliament fell victim to militia pressure. Um, so I think what one lesson we have to learn is is getting these actors to agree on a roadmap for building a new military. What is what is the role of the old officers, the remnants of Qaddafi's army? What is the role of the new so-called revolutionaries? How do we begin a process of getting the young men who are carrying arms into jobs and, and schooling? Um, let, and let's do that before we start training, because one of the lessons we learned from the, the general purpose force is we start training these guys abroad, they come back to Libya, there's no military for them to join. Mm -hmm. And so they, they're put on leave or they, or they join their militias. So getting the militias involved in the national security sector obviously is something that has to happen. One way or another, yes. Yeah. Yeah. With that, Senator Carter. Well, once again, thanks, 
both of you for your, for your testimony. I, I'm trying to get a handle on how we move forward a government of national accord. There are two competing governments currently operating, two com competing parliaments. Uh, th let me just first ask, if we had the support from the two competing sides, would that be sufficient to get legitimacy to a government of national accord? It, I, it might, but the problem, as I mentioned in my talk, is that there, there's no, there's no um, you know, faction that speaks for both camps. So what you've had over the last year is the, the so-called dawn and dignity have actually fractured into various towns and, and municipalities and, and militias. So even if you had representatives from the two sides that agreed, you would have a very diffuse landscape where spoilers could play a role. So the, the, the uh, representatives of the two factions can't really speak for the population? No, I mean, this is what I found on the ground. I think Claudia would agree that, you know, on the ground, there are these security actors who are calling the shots, and they, they look at the people who negotiated this agreement as not representing them. Um, so the, the reality of Libya is the devolution of authority to towns and municipalities, and, and I mean, there... So what is the next step if we, if we can't, Engage. Is, uh, uh, my understanding is that the the there's there are differences between the two uh, parliaments, but it's regional is the major division factor right now. Uh, how do you get then to the multiple stakeholders uh, to have the type of buy-in necessary to get a government of national accord? I mean, there are many reasons why, until today, many members of the two parliaments oppose the prime minister-designate and his cabinet lineup. Some are personal issues, uh, some are ideological, but there, I think there are two major factions um, that oppose this deal that are driven by two considerations, essentially, security and uh, economics. There's a big faction in the Tobruk-based House of Representatives that opposes this government lineup, essentially because they perceive this government as being, as proposing um, a, a future security arrangement that excludes their um, general Khalifa Haftar, which, is, which they view as a hero and which the government of, of national accord views as actually a problem, an impediment. The other, the other faction is a constituency in the East, Federalist, uh, that wants a greater share of uh, the country's resources. Over the past year and a half, they've benefited tremendously from the presence of the government and the parliament in the East of the country, benefited financially just by having these politicians in their area. They fear that this future government will not give them the same benefits of the past year and a half. So that's why we say that it, in order to move the political process forward, get more buy-in by the members of the two parliament, it is essential to build but, the okay. trust between security actors and these constituencies but that you, feel disenfranchised. Do you, do you believe if we could get buy-in by the representatives of the two parliaments that the concern about the fragmentation within the local communities can be resolved by working through the leaders of the two parliaments? Well, the parliament, I mean, the members of the parliaments to a certain extent are um, uh, pressured by 
lo their local constituencies, their military constituencies as well, sometimes even threatened by these local fragmented yeah. security groups. So if the security groups are involved and do not and start not opposing a political uh, a political future, then the members of the parliaments themselves would have an easier life. All right. So what would it take for the U.S. to return its mission to Tripoli, and would that be uh, pressure that could be used to bear to bring the stakeholders together? Well, I mean, you would have to have a plan for the security of Tripoli. And I, mean, I understand the security issues have yeah, to be yeah. resolved, but uh, is that a, a, a leverage factor for the United States? I think so, because a lot of these groups want access to U.S. aid and Western aid, and so it's, um, I think that can be an incentive. Um, but again, I just think the, the, the divisions right now over who will predominate in the security sector, will it be the old officers led by General Khalifa Heftar, will it be the younger uh, revolutionaries and Islamists? I mean, this division has not been worked out. and. Um, you know, these, as was mentioned in the East, I mean, there is this sense that General Khalifa Heftar is riding this wave. They don't want to relinquish him as the commander. In the West, there is a real sense that if the other side comes to power, they're going to throw the Islamists in jail. So there are these, you know, this, these mutual recriminations, and those have to be resolved at the security level before there can be any return of diplomatic um, facilities. So. so how do you, so you're all coming back to the security as the, uh, the next major hurdle if we're going to be able to get the type of buy-in necessary. So how do you convene a representative group to resolve the security issues? And the control, I guess, of the militias and all yeah, the other. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a role for the UN here. There's a role for a neutral broker. You do it on, in some um, neutral place. And so there are pragmatic military um, leaders, military officers, militia leaders from both sides that, that do see a path forward. And, and the, the question is, how do you identify the middle, middle ground? and you get them together and you build a roadmap for, for a new security architecture. But right now you have extremists, hardliners on both sides um, that have the wind in their sails, that are using this ISIS campaign, um, and so we're not there yet. So l let me go uh, to uh, a, a couple other important parts to all this, and that is, in the meantime, there are people hurting. Uh, the humanitarian needs are, are dramatic. Is there a network in which we can effectively help the people of Libya deal with the, your, the humanitarian crisis? I think there are two levels of engagement on that. One is local level engagement directly to alleviate the humanitarian conditions through the municipal council and civil society organizations that can distribute aid. But let me tell you, to a certain extent, the humanitarian crisis in Libya, the presence of IDPs, the shortages of food, the high living costs in the country are a reflection of a broader systematic institutional chaos in the country's economic and financial institutions. I think the U.S. has also a role to play in uh, convening the Libyan economic and financial stakeholders who are at loggerheads at the moment and pave the way for their own dialogue process to reach a consensus on the management of key financial and economic institutions of the country. This will help the humanitarian situation as well. One last just comment or question. It seems to me from what you're saying that the threat of ISIL or extremists are not looked upon as a unifying factor to develop a unified government because the local militias do their own thing and 
in dealing with the threat. Is that a fair statement, or do you think we could use the threat, the real threat of ISIL development in that country as, a, as an incentive to, to unify a country in, with a unified government? Absolutely, Senator. Uh, there are conflicting narratives between the two broad camps about what ISIS is. The Tripoli side still blames ISIS as being a puppet of the former Gaddafi loyalists operating in the east of the country. Those in the east of the country uh, blame uh, Misratan and Tripoli armed groups of maneuvering ISIS in certain doing their own wishes. So unless this very dangerous conflicting narrative of, is overcome, uh, it, is, it is impossible for these groups to come together to fight a common enemy. And as long as they remain fragmented the way they are, and we're talking about geographically groups that are at loggerheads in and around this area of Sirte, which is an ISIS stronghold. So an important part of the security sector dialogue is to overcome these conflicting narratives. Thank you. Senator Perdue. Thank you. Let me see if I get this right. <clears throat> they have a, Libya has a negative current account. They have this crushing debt that they have a growing difficulty in servicing. And they've got grinding gridlock between two factions, political factions. Sounds like Washington, D.C. Uh, the only difference is we don't have Democratic uh, and Republican militias. I don't mean to make light of it, but uh, I think we have to keep that in mind as we try to help these, these uh, people there. I want to address two issues that you both spoke to. The first is the Dawn Coalition and Dignity Coalition. Are, are, they're both getting support from somewhere. And it looks like Qatar, Turkey, and Sudan have picked one side, and uh, in Egypt and UAE possibly on another. Um, can you describe what those different countries are doing and how important their influence is or could be in bringing these two factions together, uh, Dr. Wary? Well, over the course of the conflict, it's had an enormous impact. And so from the eastern side, Egyptian military support, um, advisors supposedly, airstrikes, also from the United Arab Emirates, um, you know, has been instrumental. And so... Um, I think in many senses, Egypt sees, you know, General Khalifa Heftar as, as you know, its, its proxy in this, in this broader conflict. Um, I think there's been some lessening of the, of the Gulf support on the eastern side. Um, my understanding is that some uh, voices within the Egyptian government are becoming disenchanted with General Khalifa Heftar, but it's still very present. Um, you know, on the other side, I think it's, I've seen, we've seen a lessening of, of the Turkish and, and Qatari support. Um, to the point where, where I was visiting some you know, militias in the Dawn Coalition, and they're, they're very worried about you know, funding and outside support. And, but weapons are coming in the country. Um, there's no shortage of them. They're coming across um, borders. But are but, these outside countries um, you know, um, influencing divisiveness? Are they, are they encouraging them to get together and try to work this out um, politically? I, I'm, I don't know if we're there yet. I mean, I think, I think there has been some improvement where they see this as, as a problem, but I do see them still you know, waging this, this proxy so battle. In that, in that, in that yeah. scenario, how do we ever create a national army to take care of, of national security? How do, we, how do we do that? How do they do that? Well, again, we need to, that's why I mentioned we need to have a regional engagement strategy where we tell the Gulf, we tell the Egyptians that, you know, we need to get them on the same page with building this military, that, you know, one of the problems over the past four years what you, was you had these regional actors setting up chains of supply to individual militias, and, you know, that has to stop um, for us to, to create a new national army. So. Dr. Gazzini, you, you spoke about the financial situation and the, and the impending collapse. I'd like to dial into that just a minute. It looks like 97% of their government's revenue comes from oil and, and natural gas. 
Uh, by the way, what are they paying for the for the debt that they're adding? Obviously, they're they're able to access the debt markets. What what interest rates are they paying on that? No, this is not this is not debt. Uh, they don't receive credit from abroad. Libya still has funds, but it's a balance of uh, payment deficit that they're running every month. So when I mention two, three billion, it means that they have to tap into their own reserves, two, three billion every month. And they have about 50 to 60 billion in reserves, as I left, understand it? Left, yes. Uh, and and the, I mean the, the, the actual uh, figure is, is disputed. Some people would of say course, 70 or 60. Of course, but we're not talking it's about not years. We're talking about months. We can measure this in, in months. And a lot of this is non-cash, is non-liquid assets as well, yes. So they, it looks like their remaining liquid foreign reserves are about 50 to 60. I think you have that in your testimony. Yes. So what, what are we doing, what can we do to, uh, to help them? Because if, the, if their economy collapses, if this fiscal collapse really happens, then what hope do we have to having a diplomatic solution? And is, doesn't that really ripen the ground for, for ISIS? Yes, exactly. I mean, the economic crisis uh, in the country is a perfect, perfect recipe uh, to allow ISIS to expand even further. They can have a, a greater uh, incentive to control even refineries and key areas, oil-producing areas of the country. What the U.S. and the international community at large can do is put more pressure on the rival management chains of Libya's financial institutions. Let me tell you, Libya has a central bank located in Tripoli, which still pays all the salaries uh, to government employees, but it has a rival chain of managers of a rival central bank located in the east of the country. The same for the National Oil Corporation, which manages the country's oil and gas assets. The same for the uh, Libyan Sovereign Wealth Fund and other state-owned companies. This is not sustainable. The U.S. Treasury, U.S. government can do uh, more to convince the rival managers of these institutions to reach at least a consensus. This would help very much. One final area to, to look into is uh, what, what are the prospects for Tunisia and, um, and Algeria, uh, just the neighbors there? Uh, is ISIS now using Libya as a base? It looks to me like Libya is, a, is an attractive area. They're recruiting from Africa, from sub-Saharan Africa and even in the West. Um, is that right? And secondly, what threat does that pose for Algeria and Tunisia, the Tunisia and, and Egypt? Doesn't this, doesn't this pose a destabilizing influence on factions in, in Egypt? It's an enormous threat, and, and um, the Tunisians are a significant presence in, in the West, in Sabratha, in the Sirte Basin. Um, my understanding after my visit to Sabratha was that area was used basically as a transit hub, a logistics hub, a processing station for Tunisian jihadists coming in. Um, Unfortunately, and somewhat alarmingly, what we're seeing now is, is a big backlash in these areas by local militias against any kind of Tunisian. So they're, I mean, they're, they're basically kicking out Tunisian foreign workers. They're asking Tunisians to register. So the, the Tunisian uh, presence is a real issue um, for, for the Islamic State, and it could absolutely spill over to, to Tunisia, and it is. Um, you know, the question we have to ask is, is what is ISIS's potential to spread among Libyan actors? And, and there's a real potential there, especially in the, in the Sirte Basin and areas of the east. And also Algeria. I mean, I think the Algerians are playing somewhat of a containment game. I mean, the borders are closed down in the, in the gut area in the southwest. I was down there. Um, you know, I don't see the Algerians really playing a constructive role within Libya itself. I think they're in sort of containment mode. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, very much. Uh, 
Dr. Weary, the uh, Wall Street Journal recently reported that the United States military and some allies, including France and the UK, have for months been preparing plans for a second intervention into Libya to support a potential government of national accord. The report also said that we and our partners have already established a coalition coordinating center in Rome. Um, could you talk a little bit about your view of what the risk of overreach could be if we did have a second military intervention? Absolutely. I mean, I think the key question is who exactly are we going to partner with on the ground? And as I mentioned, I mean, there's no central body to work with. So the danger is we're going to be essentially backing disparate regional-based militias in this fight against the Islamic State. They have their own agendas. When we give assistance, when we give military aid, we cannot control how it's used. Um, you know, in the midst of this this sharp political conflict, as we both mentioned, these actors are more focused on each other rather than the Islamic State. So the question is, when we inject military force into this highly unstable situation, are we going to make it worse? Um, so that's why we, we need to proceed very carefully before we, we intervene. And the nature of that intervention, as I mentioned, if it's, if it's discreet, if it's advisory, I think those risks uh, can, be, um, can be mitigated. Yeah. What is the uh, daily production of oil right now? Around 300,000, 400,000 a day, barrels so a day. So that's down from about 2 million a day? A little less than 2 million. In yeah, so they were doing 2 million a day at $100 a barrel back in 2011. Now they're down to 300,000 $300, barrels a day at $30 a barrel. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, in a country of 6 million, mm -hmm. 2 million barrels a day is a very wealthy mm -hmm. country for only 6 million. You can do a lot of good things. So at 300,000 barrels, uh, not so good. Um, what is the prospect of ISIS moving towards the oil production areas in this country and being successful in uh, taking it over and using it for their own purposes? Yes. As you know, since uh, February 2015, um, uh, Islamic State affiliates in Libya have attacked some oil fields in the Sirte Basin area. Three were destroyed in successive attacks. Recently, in January, they did attack, uh, attempt to attack the uh, oil terminals in the, in the Sirte uh, Basin oil terminal of Sidra and Raslanov. These are the country's two main uh, crude oil exporting terminals. So obviously ISIS, ISIS affiliates have shown signs of wanting to uh, enter that area and attack the area. There's, I, my, uh, my analysis is that at the moment what they're trying to do is to actually destroy the oil and gas infrastructure in order to prevent the Libyan state from accruing revenues and from the oil and gas. And practically pushing the, the Libyan state to bankruptcy. There are no signs that at the moment they have the willingness or capacity to take over the oil, and, oil uh, facilities to actually use those as their own stream of revenue, but we cannot rule that out in the path, in right. the future. So in, in most of these countries, it's two things. It's ideology, sectarianism, and oil. Mm -hmm. So that's the little formula. So mm -hmm. following the oil is always, yes. I think, the most helpful thing because they're looking for cash to fund all the things that they want to do. So, <clears throat> so, the, um, uh, so if ISIS was moving towards controlling some of this oil territory, would that incentivize the U.S. and the other coalition partners to say, we got to get in there and make sure that they don't control the oil? And would that be a wise thing for us to do? I think, I mean, if you look at that area of Libya, it's a very sparsely populated area. It's very, it's, it's a desert fundamentally. So it should be easy to uh, make 
to, to provide intelligence, surveillance, aerial surveillance of that area and also help the Libyan actors on the ground to be able to preempt any attack. These attacks that ISIS has carried out are very um, uh, visible because they come with four, five, six armored vehicles and drive through 100 kilometers of desert. That's not uh, a normal civilian convoy uh, driving through. So I think the U.S. can help by providing intelligence uh, and logistic support to okay, the so given the, the given the um, the lowering dramatically of the oil revenues going into the hands of the government, mm -hmm. uh, that would mean that prospective um, targeted sanctions against all Libyan parties would have even more power over what the limited amount of financial assets that they control. How effective would primary and secondary sanctions be on the parties in Libya who are not cooperating with trying to put together a uh, unified national government? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, about a year ago, people looked into the possibility of, of calling for asset freeze of Libyan uh, assets abroad. Uh, the conclusion of that was that um, it would create more havoc than not. It would cause the Libyan, uh, the exchange rate of the Libyan dinar to skyrocket and cause even more inflation in the country. So experts sort of ruled that aside. Any decision that should, that, that will be taken has to take into consideration the consequences on the ground. So it shouldn't how can, exacerbate. So, so how can we put put pressure on the bad actors inside of Libya if you can't go after their assets because they're still living pretty well. <laughs> They've got their financial assets, so they're kind of immune to the problems on the street because they're still got a cash flow going into them. So how do we square that circle? How do we punish yeah. the bad guys and not punish the country but move the bad guys more towards working to get a peaceful resolution? You know, many times it's not about good and bad in Libya. Everybody feels self-righteous about no, I mean, their doing. No, bad guys to no. the extent to which they don't want to work towards peace. Yes, I, I, I understand what you mean in this respect. But uh, sometimes it's enough to favor, to help create a moment of encounter between the two opposing factions or two opposing managers in order for them to, uh, to possibly reach an agreement. Those moments of encounter are not there. It's not that somebody is ideologically opposed uh, to reaching an agreement. Sometimes it's simply that they need to be pushed, helped to create those moments of agreement. I think the U.S. can do more in that in that direction. And when we're talking about oil revenues uh, going to the states, there 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 there's another factor. Local ceasefires and local arrangements with local security units will also help reopen some of these oil fields and oil terminals that have been closed. So it goes hand in hand with that process that both Fred and I were talking about of having to move the security sector arrangements in a linear way, in a progressive way, but in a say in one direction okay. and. Mr. Mr. Weary, comment? I agree. I mean, I think I've spoken to some of these hardline actors about, you know, are you afraid of an asset freeze? And many of them brushed it off. So again, I think to the extent that these, these measures create a chilling effect within their community, and I think the community level is, is really key here, and that these individuals depend on the support of communities and, and young men. And if the communities themselves are on board with an agreement, then they'll be self-policing. I mean, this is, you know, this is a very tight-knit um, society. So, again, I think there are, you know, measures we can do. I mean, the threat of ICC prosecution, I mean, uh, asset free, these are, these are gestures that signal to, to Libyan communities that these individuals are outside the pale. Um, but it, we shouldn't rely on those measures alone. So. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your time today. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the, the coalition that's currently involved in Libya right now that the United States is, is talking to you about their sort of involvement in Libya? Just the coalition of nations and, and what that would look like and, and perhaps who, who key players are that may be missing right now in terms of addressing conversations about Libya. Well, again, I think the, um, the key coalition you know, partners in this are the Europeans, the Italians, the French, the British. Um, I think, as we both have mentioned, regional states have a role to play here in the sense that they, in some cases, need to back off. Um, you know, the Libyan, um, the Libyan perception, you know, is, is often very sensitive about, about outside involvement, about European involvement. So, again, I think having the endorsement of the United Nations is, is very important. Um, you know, but each of these states bring certain capabilities to bear um, on the Libyan challenges. After the revolution, um, you know, I think there was this great sense among, in the United States that we expected the Europeans to step up to the plate and help out, especially on the security sector reform front. Um, you know, many of them have niche capabilities to help in certain areas, police training, other areas. So I think they'd be absolutely essential, and I think the way forward is, is a multilateral one. Is, is, there, is there a key partner that we're missing in this discussion with Libya right now that's not playing an active role that should be? Um, I, th I mean, I think the Gulf is, is absolutely essential to this, and, and to the extent that they're still funding um, both sides, it's, you know, it's essential to get them on board with the, with the broader strategy. Um, but I'm not sure I would qualify them as an actual coalition partner in this. Um, right, okay. Uh, you may have mentioned this before, too, but how many Libyans do we believe are presently fighting for the Islamic State in Syria? How many Libyans are fighting in Syria? Within Syria? Yes. I don't have that number. We don't know that, okay. I don't um, if, if, if they return, I mean, what, what does that pose, the fighters coming you know, from Libya to Syria, returning to Libya then, uh, what threat does that pose in Libya? Well, it's a huge one, and that, that return was what triggered the foundation of the Islamic State, the so-called Batar Battalion re return from, from Syria, um, infused with the Islamic State's ideology, and they set, they set up the nucleus. So it's, it's absolutely essential, I mean, it's, it's critical, and so, um, you know, my understanding based on my recent visit that is a lot, a lot of Libyans went to Syria and Iraq to fight with sort of vanilla jihadist groups, but then joined the Islamic State and, and came back. And so to the extent that that process accelerates, it's, it's very worrisome. And the, the airstrikes that we've been reading about in the newspapers, I mean, they're not targeting infrastructure like they are perhaps in, in some of the ISIS-dominated areas in Iraq or some of the oil production facilities, refining facilities in Libya. They're not targeting that as, as far as you know. As far as I know, no. I mean, the, they've been against high-value individuals. Um, and then recently, this, this farm, which I, I saw, it's, it's a, it was basically a processing center for Tunisian jihadists, where they, they would come and get training before going on. So. Mm -hmm. General Dunford had stated that, uh, you know, it's fair to say, in January, testifying before Congress, said it's fair to say that we're looking to take decisive military action against ISIL in conjunction with the, the political process. What, what decisive military action would actually do something different in Libya than we're seeing in Syria? I, I don't know what decisive would look like. I mean, I, I think the, the, the key hub of, of the Islamic State, um, you know, where it's really established an operational foothold is, is the city of Sirte. And, and so the liberation of that, of that city, I think, would qualify as... as you know, decisive. But other than that, I mean, the strategy is, is not really decisive. It's one of eroding 
eroding the emerging nodes of the Islamic State, whether it's in the West, uh, much of this is, will be through intelligence, um, working with local actors. But if I was to say if there's one you know, center of gravity, it would be the town of Sirte. Yeah. Ms. Gazzini? Yes. Um, certainly, Sirte is the main focus of uh, IS activity. It is its stronghold, but let's not forget that it is, uh, in order to confront this organization in full in Libya, you also have to tackle uh, its presence in Benghazi and its presence in the other eastern city called Derna. I mention this because in, the, in these other cities, um, ISIS affiliates have been able to co-opt other groups on their side, in Benghazi especially. So for a U.S. strategy to work or an international strategy to work against ISIS, it's not sufficient to think of a military action, decisive, targeted, uh, insert. It also has to take into consideration how to resolve these strategic alliances, alliances of convenience that IS affiliates in Benghazi have been able to, um, to weave with other local Islamist and non-Islamist groups. Thank you, and I, I need to head back to Energy Committee. I apologize, Mr. Chairman, so I'll go back in my time. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony. Um, and I'm trying to glean what is the path forward here from uh, both your testimony and your responses. You know, I, Mr. Weary, I uh, looked at uh, your testimony in, ad in advance of the hearing, and I was struck, as you seem to be, uh, that the complicated reality on the ground is one that has been centuries in the making. Uh, transactional society, hundreds of militias, competing ethnic and tribal affiliations, very aggressive regional loyalties that on any one day uh, can include homegrown and foreign-born radicals, uh, neighbors simply seeking to defend their homes and families, gangs stealing oil and wealth and engaging in gratuitous violence, tribes and states of cold and hot wars against one another for generations. Um, regional actors exploiting or protecting natural resources like oil and water. It's, it's, it's amazingly complicated. And so what I am trying to gleam and looking at the, the, the reality of and the summary of both of your answers to some of the questions, the, the fragmentation means that there are literally hundreds of different groups that potentially you have to get to buy in which uh, is more or less the same situation we faced right after the 2011 military action. So I, what are the tools within our disposal and that of the international community in our arsenal of tools that could bring this fractious group, or at least the most significant elements of it together not only for their interests, obviously they want to continue to be involved and engaged and of importance, I get that. But normally when you bring security elements together, you bring them together in favor of a nation. Some things that I want to fight for and die for because I believe that that nation at the end of the day represents you know, the interests of me and anyone else uh, uh, who lives within Libya and in this disparate group. So I'm trying to figure out what do we bring to bear um, on these fragmented groups at this point in time to move us in a direction that not only creates the security situation we want, the allies that we want to fight ISIS, which is obviously critical to us, 
but also to some sense of national government here, because otherwise we've brokered a truce among security groups who are not committed to a national government. Can you sort of like give me some sense of that? Uh, thank you. Uh, you're right to say that it is difficult to bring all these uh, fractured groups together in the absence of an inspirational figure or inspirational government. And unfortunately, the lineup of this proposed government of national unity has done very little to be that inspirational figure. Its media appearances have been abysmal news of infighting in this nine-member presidential council has actually caused a lot of disaffection. But, but in practical terms, what are the tools that the international community in the U.S. have? Um, these are very practical. In more human resources, even within the U.N. team, dedicated to security sector arrangements. Throughout 2015, there were only five, six people in the U.N. team trying to forge a consensus or a dialogue between the security units. I think five people is a bit too little. Uh, there, there's scope to increase the numbers. It's important for these international um, advisors and uh, individuals who can support this process of dialogue between the security units to actually be present in the country. One of the problems, of course, you know, is that the embassies are not located in Libya. It is difficult for groups to uh, groups and international advisors to go and meet these military commanders on the ground because they are on the ground. They're not sitting in a Tunis hotel waiting for, for, for a meeting with international interlocutors. But as both Fred proved and what I'm doing in Libya also proved you can go into the country. You can sit with these commanders. And that simple fact would help them um, uh, move towards a, a process that would head towards unity, mm -hmm. I think. Ms. Where you have any comments? I, I, I hear that. And that is a facilitation mm -hmm. of a conversation, which, of course, is worthy in and of itself and hopefully. But then, what else do we bring other than additional human capital to create that facilitation of a dialogue uh, at, to bring disparate groups together? I mean, I'm always thinking about what leverage do you bring to the table or what capital do you bring to the table? How do you incentivize people? Uh, and, and that's what I'm trying to glean. So I appreciate that element of the answer. Do, do you have any other perspectives? Well, I, I think we have to be sort of humble about what leverage we bring. I mean, the, the, there is a sort of constituency in Libya that sees the tre tremendous humanitarian economic costs of this conflict, and, and I think some of those actors were the ones that started this dialogue. But the parties themselves have to come to this realization that they, you know, they need to stop. And I think we shouldn't exaggerate the divides in Libya. I mean, this is a small country. Um, you know, many different families are related. There's interdependence of trade. Um, the, the expectations of a breakup, I think, are, are, are overblown. Um, I do think we need to, to increase the mandate of, of the UN in terms, on, terms of the security front. But I think our, our guiding principle in the interim is, is to do no harm. First, do no harm. I mean, the, the issue where we are today was, was the result of one faction you know, in the East undertaking a campaign in the guise of counterterrorism that basically forced disparate uh, Islamist, Islamist militias and radicals to coalesce and open the door for radicalization. I mean, the, part of the, the Islamic State's appeal has be, is because of this factional um, you know, civil war that was aided by, by regional actors. 
And so I think we need to limit the, um, the damage from that. Um, but I do think there has to be some humbleness that you know, the factions themselves have to come to the table before we can uh, force them. Mm -hmm. so. All right, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, I, I appreciated you reading his uh, testimony. And I, I wonder sometimes whether we take all of those historic issues into account before we take actions. And uh, I think we don't. And, um, and then to just leave it as we have with no focus on the security front um, is fascinating and um, obviously has led us to a very bad place. But Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Uh, Wary, thank you for your testimony and your work as well as uh, Ms. Cazzini. Just to follow up on Senator Benendez's question, you sort of opened up the, uh, the avenue here. You said your first responsibility, right, is the Hippocratic Oath, don't do any harm. Um, what is um, a potential U.S. action? What's a mistake we could make? Right, that would compound the fractionalization that could um, actually result in the situation getting worse, which is unimaginable that it is. What should we guard against uh, as a potential next step out of an abundance of enthusiasm to try to be helpful here? Well, I would go back to, to counterterrorism and the idea that we, we are fixated on this threat from the Islamic State, and that, that could lead us to intervene in ways where we, we exacerbate the partisan fault lines you know, there was an effort in the past, in, in 2013, to train a, a counterterrorism battalion uh, in Libya that there were real questions about who's in that battalion and, and are we creating a, a real, you know, democratically controlled military unit or are we creating a factional militia that, you know, we're giving it support but who's to say it will use that military support in ways that we want or against adversaries that we consider terrorists. And so I think that's a real risk is you inject assistance, you inject support into this mix and you can't control how it will be used. Um, so. But you sort of describe a chicken and the egg problem here in that if, if you train up a counterterrorism force today, ISIL may not be a big enough problem that they would concentrate their force there, they'll go after somebody else. But then if you wait for ISIL to, uh, to become big and bad enough that it actually is a relevant player in the theater in a way that it may not be today, um, then it's too late to train up the capacity to take them on. Yeah, no, this is the real dilemma. And, and I mean, as I've outlined in, in my, my testimony in an article I've written, I think there are ways we can mitigate that through close oversight. So when we have these advisory missions, I mean, I just, I just think um, familiarizing our, our operators, I mean, the people that are interfacing with the comp complex militia landscape is the best way to go in mitigating the risk. So when you train a particular unit, you know, ask the question, who's in that unit? Is it, is it Zintani's? Is it from Misrata? And just being aware of the landscape, I think, is absolutely central. But, but we don't have the, the luxury of time. You're right. Um, in answer to a question from Senator Gardner, it poses to both of you, but the question was again to you. Um, you were asked who is the sort of missing player here, and you did talk about the Gulf states um, who have been on both sides of uh, this dispute for some time, the Qataris on one side, the Emiratis uh, on another. Um, what are the conversations that we need to have with the Gulf states to get them of one mind? They frankly tell us um, what we want to hear. Uh, they tell us that they are just as committed to we are in a unity state, that they're working on the ground to try to make that happen. That never seems to be the case. Um, uh, how, um, how disconsonant 
is what we're hearing from the Gulf states, that they are trying to be responsible players, and what you see on, uh, on the ground is they seem to be um, supplying funds and potentially arms to both sides, to several sides of, of this fight. Uh, ask it to both of you. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you're right to mention that on the surface, all the international players are players in the Libya file. Uh, they're there. There's no real absent, but it's, uh, uh, it's the matter of intent. What's the purpose of their being present in, in the conversation on Libya? I think there's a, a core of uh, Gulf countries that is, is present but has different goals. They want a unified government in Libya, but they want it on their own terms. They want a unified government in Libya that can implement the na same national security measures that they see as essential. And I'm referring to the UAE here in Egypt. As you know, domestically, they have a very absolutist vision of what is their national security and what has to be done in order to implement that national security. And that means ruling out any power-sharing agreement with groups that are deemed, in their, from their point of view, as a menace, as a threat, or even as terrorists, even though that label does not comply to our label of what a terrorist group is. Um, so I think what can be done is to uh, try to influence their vision on their own national security and what is the best course of action for Libya. There's, uh, I think it's Libya will continue to be in war, will con groups will continue to confront each other uh, across the country if this exclusivist vision is there. We have to tell them that it is in their own best interest to put aside their own uh, concerns and allow for a power-sharing deal even though with those groups that in their country are not, um, are not allowed to operate. I would just have a conversation with them that you know, their, their approach to Libyan politics that ex excludes Islamists could produce a threat down the road that, that affects them in the sense that you know, ISIS and terrorist groups thrive on recruiting losers from the new political order. So if there are Islamists that are excluded, if they're not, if they're kept out of politics, I mean, they could be susceptible to radicalization and the Islamic State could, um, you know, could recruit them. So having this conversation, and this is of course not a conversation just about Libya, but the broader, the broader Arab world, the post-Arab Spring um, landscape is, is the role of, of political Islam. Yeah. Well, it's obviously all of the proxy players in this fight answer that question very differently about whether Islamists are brought into government or uh, or kept out. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker. And I'd like to thank uh, both of the witnesses today uh, for your testimony in this incredibly uh, challenging and complex environment and in confronting the question, uh, what can we do that will cause no greater harm and that could possibly move us in a positive direction? So uh, I, I just having reviewed um, your testimony and looked at some of the answers you've given to some of these difficult questions, um, you recommend, if I understand correctly, tying assistance, uh, tying military training equipment support in the counter ISIS fight uh, to first making significant progress towards political reconciliation inclusion, uh, both within military units and then nationally in terms of some sort of a government. Um, how do you think, uh, talk me through in a little more detail, and if you've addressed this already, forgive me, um, how military strikes by the West will be perceived, misperceived, or used um, in order to advance um, in, intra-factional fights, um, and how we can actually 
drive agreement to a governance structure that promotes compromise over the long term? And what are the lessons from Iraq and from Syria that you would apply to this circumstance, if they're relevant? Um, at the moment, the U.S. airstrikes have been discreet and limited, and there hasn't been very much uh, visible backlash to these uh, to these strikes. Um, it's difficult to uh, to to say now what would happen if this uh, type of um, uh, airstrike were to increase in numbers and um, and uh, intensify. There could be backlash, especially because more the more you target, the more the chances of making an error, and you don't want to do that. So as long as it remains discrete and based on uh, credible intelligence, then uh, these airstrikes will will possibly not lead to uh, domestic opposition. But uh, what we're advocating is that the political process be pushed forward hand in hand with a uh, process in the security sector and in the economic uh, field as well. One of the mistakes made in December was to push for a political deal between some 20 signatories, political signatories, without having done the groundwork for amongst the security units. To have a lasting political deal, you need the security units to back that. And you also need the economic uh, and business elites to, to back that as well. Um, so it's a matter of bringing the three levels of conversation, politics, security, and economy forward together, and all the while doing a counterterrorism strategy to contain the, the, the ISIS threat. I would agree. I mean, military strikes so far have, have had a minimal you know, impact. I mean, with the strike on Sabratha, the, the Tobruk-based government, of course, you know, raised the flag that you know, we weren't consulted. This is a, a violation of our sovereignty. But again, the, the ripple effects have been minimal so far. Um, the, the lessons learned from Iraq and Syria, let me just extract one from Iraq. I think the real lesson from Iraq is, is the attention to exclusionary politics and how that creates you know, radicalization, and also especially with the security sector, that organs within the security sector, if they're captured by one faction and they're used against a minority or another group, can have devastating long-term effects. And so in Iraq, we weren't attuned to that. And so I think moving forward, if we, if we do start you know, training and assisting the Libyans with their security sector, we have to pay attention to what's called a whole of government approach to, to building institutions, ensuring that different regions and tribes are represented in, in those institutions. And, and, and you know, really um, exerting scrutiny that, that these institutions are not captured by one faction as they were in, in Iraq and used to marginalize communities because that just sows the seeds of, of ISIS. So, Let me ask another few questions, if I might, about ISIS and the relationships between ISIS and Raqqa and uh, the Syria and Iraqi uh, ISIS and Libya. How closely connected are they? Um, what evidence is there really of command and control is this simply just a, a place to send additional foreign fighters and to have a, a separate foundation or base from, from which to act, or are they really closely connected? And is there a natural limit uh, to how far ISIS can expand in terms of its geographic control within Libya because of the strength of local militias um, that are also uh, well-armed, uh, well-experienced, and aggressively fighting for their share of both physical territory, political space, and, and oil wealth? Um, is there a real limit? And how does this uh, compare or how is this distinct from Syria? 
um, the consequences of uh, Gaddafi and his state collapsing um, have been uh, dramatic. Some might even say catastrophic for several other sub-Saharan African countries and for the region. Um, what, if any, lessons would you conclude about the path forward in Syria? So yeah. that's for the rest of my time. Thank you. Well, I, I do think there are inherent limits to, to the Islamic State's um, expansion in the sense that they haven't been able to play this, this sectarian card where they can prey upon you know, Sunni marginalization. Um, they've obviously got this, this hub within the Sirte Basin, but I visited this checkpoint called Abu Ghraim that is manned by Misratan militias, and, and so that's really the, the sort of front line. And so there's real limits to how far they can expand westward because of the presence of these, of these Misratan militias. They're certainly trying to put out feelers um, to the south in, in communities like Beni Walid and Jofra. Um, you know, but the, the question really in Libya is that everything is hyper-localized. Everything is very local, and so it's very difficult for any group to really expand its territory, including the government. So this is the, you know, everything is town and, and tribe um, related. Now, that's not to say that they can't attract recruits from some of these older jihadist groups, other Islamist militias. That's what we see in Benghazi. Because these Islamist militias were confronted with a common enemy, General Khalifa Heftar, they banded together. And so the story in Benghazi is really that these Islamist militias are, are losing ground to the Islamic State. The Islamic State is sending foreign fighters in. I think that's the real concern, is that the degree to which the Islamic State Central uh, decides to invest in Libya through funding, through fighters, through training, advice, um, I mean, that's the, that's the real worry. And, um, you know, the Islamic State doesn't have to control a lot of communities or territories to present a threat in terms of, of cells, in terms of training and capacity uh, to inflict damage on, on Tunisia and other vulnerable neighboring states. Um, uh, I disagree to a certain extent in the sense that I don't think that there are actual limits to, to the capacity of growth of ISIS in Libya. There's no checkpoint beyond which they cannot go. This is because of the security fragmentation in the country. I mentioned earlier that there have been ISIS-led attacks against the oil fields in the central area of the Sirte Basin, um, and actually what has stopped those attacks from allowing ISIS affiliates to move forward was a, a, a security group called the Petroleum Facilities Guard. Now, if you look at the fact that the commander of this, uh, this unit that patrols this 200 kilometer of coast is hated by other security actors and political actors in the country, and they will refuse to send him aid, military, and actually support him uh, with uh, uh, reinforcement, military reinforcement, tells you how vulnerable the whole country is. These political military rivalries between security units could allow, if this state of fragmentation continues, could allow areas that are now not under ISIS control to be easily um, uh, taken over if there is no uh, collaboration between those anti-Islamist, anti-ISIS uh, forces uh, in the country. Um, so I think this is, um, this is an actual limit of, of Libya's capac capacity now to, um, to control this, uh, this organization and limit its growth. You mentioned, you questioned earlier, uh, what are the relations between I ISIS in, uh, in Syria and Iraq and Libya? It, I think I, I have, I've, I've traveled to ISIS-controlled territories before they were fully ISIS-controlled territories, but they were already, already there, Sirt, uh, Benjawad, Harawa. Uh, a year ago, um, uh, most of the commanders of that area were actually still Libyans. Uh, 
uh, and the rank and file was jointly Libyan and foreign. I think in this past year we've seen a big change. Uh, we've seen the flow of more um, operatives coming from Syria and Iraq, including amongst the ranks of the commanders. And this also explains the change of their tactics in this area. Uh, a year ago, um, there wasn't much violence directed against the local population uh, that you know, largely went by. Uh, only individuals who were associated as being uh, um, uh, recruits of the local security units were arrested and killed or, or put to trial. Uh, now we've seen a much more violent face of ISIS operatives uh, in Libya, I think because of this arrival of foreigners to the country. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Y'all have been outstanding witnesses. Um, just as you paint the picture in Libya, it's uh, it's uh, one that's not particularly optimistic and one that you feel they on the ground are going to need to resolve themselves with very light involvement from the United States. Uh, at least that's uh, what I understand what you're saying. Just uh, to go back to the very beginning, has your have your observations of Libya today, how have they affected your thinking relative to the actions that the United States and others took in the beginning to, to remove Gaddafi? Well, it's not so much the removal, but what came after. I think we, we missed a, a, a crucial window the first year. I call it the lost year when, when it was still possible to, to get a handle on the security sector, um, to, to, to save, I think, the very fragile um, experiment that you know was was post Gaddafi Libya. I mean, there was this obsessive focus on on elections as as a marker of success. And I've spoken to both Libyans and American diplomats that were involved with this. And there was this sense that if we got this right, and and the elections were fair and transparent, then we could basically declare victory. And and without this broader attention to the power of the militias, to these factional divides, I mean, that's the real sense of of you know, loss, I think. Um, so it's not the, the decision to remove him, but it's, it's the crucial, crucial question of follow-up. And, you know, we don't do that very well. Um, institutionally, um, I think we relied excessively on the United Nations and the Europeans to do that. The United Nations were not equipped to do it. So again, that was the crucial, um, you know, lesson learned from that period. Ms. Gazin. Um, my organization, the International Crisis Group, in June 2011 said that there were the grounds for a mediated negotiation with the Gaddafi regime. We're in the peak of the war, NATO-led intervention was winning its battles, but we thought that at that, that moment the war could stop and there were opportunities to engage in a dialogue with the regime. Unfortunately, that did not happen. The intervention led to a policy of seemingly regime change. And I think that very action of going after the regime produced this culture of disrespect and violence towards your political enemy, which currently exists in Libya. This idea that you do not need to compromise because actually you can get it all if only you go after your enemy. It's this culture that we infused in the country because of what happened that October uh, 2011 um, when we went after uh, the, the head of this uh, regime. It is that culture that is now ruining the country. And 
fostering this lack of trust towards your compatriot. Mr. Wyrie, do you have any response to that? Um, no, just to reemphasize what I said before, that I, I think the, I mean, the decision, you know, this was, this was a revolution. I think the, the responsibility of the international community was to shepherd the, what came after, and I think that's where the focus, you know, should be in terms of actual lessons learned. I mean, the, um, I think much of what we're seeing today in Libya is the response, is the, is the result of 42 years of mismanagement of Gaddafi, the culture of impunity, the divide and rule, that came not from NATO's intervention, but that came from the way Gaddafi ran politics. I mean, to say that this was a peaceful country ignores the tremendous strife and divisions that were boiling under the surface. And to say that he was keeping a lid on Islamic extremism is, I think, disingenuous because many of them were going abroad. Um, so again, going back to the follow-up, there could have been a greater management of the consequences after the revolution. There was this overwhelming appreciation of the international response, pro-Americanism. There was a sense among many Libyans that they wanted a democratic, unified um, state. So the question is, what went wrong? Um, you know, why, why was armed force the currency of the day? Why was there no greater attention to the security sector, to building security institutions early on before they became fragmented and, and subject to militia power. What do you think, what, what did it send to the region? I, 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 I did not think we should have done what we did and um, I don't, I still wish for good things to happen in Libya. We had a person who had done away with their weapons of mass destruction and the signal it sent to me was if you do away with your weapons of mass destruction, um, you're gonna be taken out. I thought a lot of people learned from that a lot of people learn from that. So, I, uh, I, what, uh, I think it sent a lot of signals in the region, and uh, and we are where we are. Let me let me flip it and, and just ask one different question. So we've asked someone asked you what um, what we've learned from Syria to to help in Libya uh, as it relates to Syria. What have we learned from Libya? relative to how we go about um, a, a transition, if you will, with Assad? Uh, I think Libya teaches us that um, we need to be a bit more critical when talking to domestic interlocutors. Uh, one of the failures of the post-2011 process was to actually uh, take at face value what was being told. We can do it we can manage our political transition, you don't need to disarm, uh, we can take care of our security factions, we'll do it, we'll do it. Um, these were not lies. Libyans generally believed that they could do it, that they could manage their own transition. Uh, don't we all make that same mistake of thinking that we can, uh, we can solve our own problems? Uh, but I think a bit more critical thought in the ability of local groups to manage that process, to disarm and to go beyond their own parochial interests um, is needed for future course of action as well. Senator Risch. <clears throat> Briefly, um, Ms. Gazzini, I, um, I don't want to quarrel with your, your answer when asked what lessons we learned, and that is that uh, we taught the people that uh, they shouldn't I'm, I'm oversimplifying what you said, I think, but that uh, 
the path forward was not sitting at the table and talking your dis differences out, but rather that uh, military force is the way you accomplish what you're trying to do. I, g I gather that's what you were saying. We taught the people there, or they believed that after, uh, after the initiative that removed Gaddafi. Am I phrasing that incorrectly or? Well, yes, that, I mean, fundamentally that my argument was that what happened in, uh, in Libya in that October, November 2011 uh, at the end of the NATO intervention, meaning going after uh, members of the regime, Muammar Gaddafi himself, created this culture, A, of impunity, uh, and second of all, create, fostered uh, a culture by which Libyans thought it was all right to go against your political enemy and not uh, open up channels of dialogue, even when it could be in your own personal interest to do so. And, and I guess uh, I don't argue uh, that that's what they believe. I think they believe that long before that initiative ever happened, and I think they believe that today. And unfortunately, uh, my experience, and after listening to all the people that come through here every day, that part of the world seems to be that that is their belief there, and uh, I, I, if your argument is well, you know that contributed to uh, uh, making it uh, more believable. That, you know, I could buy that, but to say that somehow we've instilled that, I mean, that looks to me like it's been going on in that part of the world for centuries. That that's how you do this: is you take up arms and do what you want to do but you don't sit down at the table and uh, like we Westerners do to resolve stuff. So uh, thank you though for your thoughts. I appreciate that. And in that regard, I, I respectfully disagree with you, but uh, um, I, our experience here in this committee as we listen to people is that that's just the way they do business there. Now how you change that, I certainly don't know, but uh, in any event. Uh, Mr. Ward, do you have any comment on that or? Well, again, I would argue that this was a product of, of Qaddafi's legacy, the way he ruled. There was, there was no participation in governance. There was no communication among civil society. There was no you know, dialogue. So, so you're absolutely right. I mean, to expect them to move from that situation to, to a liberal democracy or some sort of, you know, is, is exaggerated. And so, of course, they have this very triumphalist notion that it's, it's winner-take-all, it's polarized, it's just deep suspicion of the other whether it's another community, whether it's another tribe. This is the way Qaddafi ruled. He played communities against one another. There were, he, he prevented dialogue. Um, so I think this is really the legacy of his misrule. And, and the reason there are no, you know, why are there no Libyan Mandelas? Why are there no Libyan inspirational figures? Because he, he completely deprived the system of any chance for that to evolve. Uh, there's, there's, there was no bureaucracy. There was no, the, the muscle tissue of, of governance was not there. He, he himself was the center of everything. It was hyper-centralized. He controlled everything. So when he goes, you know, what's, what's to follow? Would you agree with me that in that part of the world, that, that's not unique to Libya or Gaddafi? Absolutely. I mean, these are hyper-centralized states, the oil curse. I mean, the absence of, of investment in human capital. I mean, this is rife across the region. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. There are two other issues I at least want to put on the table. Um, after listening to the uh, hearing here, it's apparent that there's not going to be a quick solution <laughs> in Libya. Uh, and that just because the United Nations has taken action doesn't mean we're going to see uh, an effective government anytime soon. With that in mind, there's a continuing crisis uh, in, in that region with migration and trafficking that will require a strategy. 
we cannot wait and allow people to be at risk the way they are. The chairman's been one of our great leaders on trafficking in persons. We also have, of course, the migrant issue and safety of migrants, which is a huge international problem. So uh, we're going to need your help in how we can be effective in dealing with that issue because it is a high priority for America. And uh, we would appreciate any advice you might want to give us on that. The second matter is that something we've been talking about in this committee for a long time, and that is those who commit atrocities need to be held accountable. And uh, as we look at a, a national government in Libya, as we look at international engagement, there has to be accountability for those who have committed atrocities. And it has to be in a very open, transparent way. We always welcome a host country being able to handle it itself. If it cannot, then we look for the international community to come in and provide a framework. But that has to be part of this equation, of course, too many times. We've been putting that down as a second priority rather than a high priority. So I just mentioned those two points because I don't want this hearing to end without um, putting those two issues on the table. And, uh, I, I welcome our witnesses' engagement with us as we try to uh, deal with these uh, continuing problems. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, I thank you, too, and uh, I think it's been a great hearing. I, I think the thing that uh, both of you have uh, put on display today is this whole focus. I mean, as we look at um, what the U.S. government has been contemplating doing relative to ISIS, um, y'all are putting forth a very different view as to how that needs to be dealt with, and uh, very different. And uh, that's something that I'm going to take from this meeting and appreciate. Um, and um, um, I look forward to having discussions in that regard. Uh, I'm semi-shocked, especially Mr. Wary, that your point of view is, is what it is relative to that, uh, but um, I'm not criticizing that. Uh, matter of fact, your point of view being what it is has greater uh, effect on me um, than someone not of your ilk, but uh, it's a very different point of view than I think is held right now within those that are looking at uh, dealing with ISIS. Do you agree with that? Um. Maybe, I, maybe you're reading too much into my I, I think the general thrust of U.S. policy, as I understand it, is, is, is sound. I mean, it's just, I, would, I would just urge greater caution to these, these complexities that we've outlined, that we need to be very cognizant about who we're dealing with, about injecting military force, about training. Um, you know, I think um, we've got some capable people in the Defense Department, State Department, I think, that understand these complexities. And my understanding is the strategy is, is proceeding according to those uh, complexity, you know, is respecting those complexities. So. We thank you both. If you would, um, people want to ask questions, we'll leave the record open until the close of business on Monday. If you could answer those fairly promptly, we would appreciate it. Uh, this has been a major contribution to, to our committee. We thank you for that, and the meeting is adjourned.